Last Lord's Day, we considered the subject of God's divine, sovereign election of his people from Ephesians chapter 1. And in that particular passage, we noted that Paul makes very clear that you were elected by God. You did not elect yourself. Secondly, we find that you were elected not because you were holy or because he foresaw faith in you, but rather because he set his love upon you, even though you were viewed as his enemy. And thirdly, we saw that you were elected not to live a life as you please. You were elected to be holy unto God. We noted that salvation from beginning to end is of the Lord. We are what we are by the grace of God and His grace alone. It is all of God's sovereign will and good pleasure. But what about the responsibility of man? Does God's sovereign will eliminate man's responsible obedience? Absolutely not. How does reaping what we have sown according to Galatians chapter 6, relate to God's absolute sovereignty. Because there is a passage which emphasizes very clearly man's responsibility. We reap what we have sown. Must we deny one or the other? Must we deny both? Absolutely not. We affirm both. Both are taught in God's Word. Both must be held as the truth of God. And we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 6 in just a moment. But before we consider that text, there was one objection to God's unconditional election that I did not mention last Lord's Day that I simply want to very briefly consider before we pass on to look and consider man's uh, responsibility. And that is the passage that's found in 1 Peter 1, 2. 1 Peter 1, 2. And the phrase, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Verse 1. 1 Peter 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Last Lord's Day, we noted that God does not elect based on foreseen faith in those whom he has chosen. He did not see them as those who were believers in Christ and on that basis elected them. They were viewed as his enemies. They were viewed as sinners. And God set his love upon you, elect of God. He set his love upon you and on that basis he chose you to be his own while you were yet his enemies. But what do we do with a passage like this? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Well, let us very, very briefly simply consider a few 
things in regard to this passage. Let us first note that what God foreknows is foreknown because it is foreordained. God does not foreknow, foreknow uncertain events. God foreknows events that are determined and fixed. For God to know anything before it occurs is to say that it must have been certain to occur in the manner in which he foresaw it or foreknew it. A determination has had to occur. There cannot be foreknowledge of uncertain events. Why is it certain to occur? Because God determined it to be certain to occur exactly on that basis. And so when we find a passage like this in 1 Peter 1-2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, God is not like a prophet who simply is looking through the corridors of time and sees certain events. Now, prophets can prophesy because events are certain to occur too. But God is not simply like a prophet who has no control over the events that he foresees. God has determined what will occur, and on that basis, He foresees and foreknows what will happen and how every detail will fall out. You see, it's not simply a fortunate accident that things turn out the way that they do. But it is on the basis of God's foreordination. There's one other place in this first chapter of 1 Peter where the word foreknown is used. The Greek word for foreknown. And it's in verse 20. 1 Peter 1.20. Now, the King James Version uses the word foreordained, but it is the same word that is used in 1 Peter 1.2 to foreknow. But the translators couldn't avoid this particular meaning or nuance that this word foreknown must mean foreordained. Here we find in verse 20, who, speaking of Christ, was, I'm sorry, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Quite literally, who verily was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but, for, uh, but was manifest in these last times for you. Now, does God simply foreknow that Christ would come and would die and would offer his life as a sacrifice for those whom God had chosen? Because he foresaw all of the events as they would fall out, was there no foreordination? Was there no certainty to the plan? Was it not determined by God that every detail of Christ's life, of his death and of his resurrection would occur exactly as it did occur? 
Are we to assume that all of these events are simply accidents, not predetermined by God's foreordination as they relate to our salvation in Christ? Was that all uh, contingent in any way or was it certain to occur? Because it is the same word that is used in 1 Peter 1.2. I submit to you, dear ones, that just as Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, so were God's elect foreknown before the foundation of the world. Absolute certainty. No contingency as to the way in which all of these things would fall out in God's mind, in God's plan, in God's decree. And we find in Acts 2.23, one last passage, which I think helps us to understand the first Peter passage, Acts 2.23, in the sermon which Peter offered on the day of Pentecost, Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find, I'll begin with verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Notice, delivered by the determinate counsel of God and God's foreknowledge. Why did God or how did God foreknow? Because of his determinate counsel. His foreknowledge is based upon his foreordination and not vice versa. And so we are God's elect according to God's foreknowledge because God first foreordained all that would occur. And on the basis of that foreordained plan, God foresaw, foreknew, and elected us to be in Christ Jesus. Someone has said it this way, foreordination cannot rest on foreknowledge. For only that which is certain can be foreknown. And only that which is already predetermined can be certain. And so we pass at this time, dear ones, from considering that one leftover objection from the Sermon on Divine Election to talk now and consider the subject of man's responsibility before God. Divine election, God's absolute sovereignty does not relieve man of his responsibility to obey God at all. 
<clears throat> Dear ones, you are not being carried along by some blind, fatalistic force against your will to do or be something you do not want to do or be. God did not bring into His kingdom anyone who said, I do not want to be in your kingdom, God, but if you force me, I will. God gave to everyone He has chosen a will and a desire to be where they are. And they have, according to the confession of faith, they have freely exercised that will in following the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone is a Christian, it is because they want to be a Christian. And if anyone is not a Christian, it is because they do not want to be a Christian. Man's responsibility to obey God is absolutely secure according to the revealed will of God. You are not like a piece of wood that is simply being carried by a current against your will. You, in this life, do choose to be what you want to be. And yet God remains absolutely sovereign in all that occurs. <clears throat> and we, as we look at the passage, our text in Galatians chapter 6, We note these particular words from the Apostle Paul, Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And so we find this particular principle in God's Word. What a man sows, as it pertains to his moral character, that will he also reap in the same manner. Where are you sowing, beloved? Where are you sowing? In what field are you sowing? Because out of that field you will reap what you have sown. You see, this is simply, this particular principle that God has laid out through the Apostle Paul is absolutely consistent with His covenant. God rewards faithful obedience. And God curses and judges unfaithful disobedience. 
He will discipline his children who have been unfaithful covenantally. He will reward those with like character who have been faithful in obeying the Lord. This is simply God's covenant being worked out in history. For example, if you prepare a garden, those of you who uh, like to grow vegetables and uh, uh, fruit and this type of thing, if you prepare a garden and you sow squash seeds in your garden, you're not going to, at the time of harvesting, look out in amazement out of your window and say, my, look, there is squash. I never would have expected there to be squash from those squash seeds. Now, why are you not surprised? Because there is a principle involved that what you sow, and even in the area of agriculture, what you sow, you will reap. We certainly see the same thing in our society at large. Sowing the sexual revolution during the 60s and the 70s has reaped the rich harvest of VD in epidemic proportions. Millions of teenage pregnancies, abortion on demand, and even without parental consent. AIDS, the whole safe sex philosophy, Rampant, no-fault divorce, adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. And so we see again, all around us, that this principle holds true. What we sow by way of moral character, we will reap by way of moral character. And when the Apostle in Galatians chapter 6 talks about sowing to the flesh or sowing to the Spirit, he refers back to Galatians chapter 5. Notice what is the flesh. Notice what are the deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. Verse 19 and following. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the deeds of the flesh. Those who sow to the flesh they will reap in their lives this moral character. However, those who sow to the Spirit, we find just following that, beginning with verse 22, Galatians 5, 22, 
the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And those, by the same token, who sow to the Spirit... In this field, in the field of the fruit of the Spirit, will reap in their lives this character as well. And so, the question that the Apostle would be asking, where are you sowing? Because that is where you will be reaping. Dear ones, there are many ways in which Christians may try to avoid or ignore this principle of God. What a man sows, he will reap. Two primary ways come to mind. You may try to avoid this particular principle by blaming others. By passing the buck, as it were. Just as Adam passed the buck to Eve and Eve passed it to the serpent. Just as Aaron passed it on to the people of Israel when he was caught red-handed having made this golden calf. And he blamed it upon the people. They gave me the gold, I threw it into the fire, and now came this calf. You know, in counseling, I think one of the, the biggest hurdles to cross over is simply this particular issue that we must all own up to our own sins and confess that we have sinned against God, that we are to blame, that we cannot blame anyone else for our own sin. It's true that you cannot control what others do to you. You cannot control the evil that was done to you and while you were a child by other people, by parents, by siblings. You cannot control the evil that was done to you by a former, an ex-spouse. You cannot control what your neighbor or anyone else has done to you. There are circumstances that are beyond our control. That is true. But you can, by God's ever-present, ever-abundant grace, control how you respond to what others have done to you. Even when you have been victimized, unable to prevent that evil from being perpetrated against you, you are still responsible before God to respond as God has called you to respond. Many, many people today, and even within our congregation, would, I believe, be able to say, in these various ways, I have been victimized. But dear ones, to live in victimization is to be helpless. 
to realize that you are not a victim, but that you are a victor through Christ who loved you, that you are an overcomer through Christ, and that you overcome evil. According to Romans chapter 12, you might want to mark this, what God says, how you are to overcome evil. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. But overcome evil with good. We find in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that there is really never an excuse on our parts for not thinking, speaking, or acting in a godly manner. For there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. There is never a situation, dear ones, no matter how desperate, that you are backed into a corner where you must say, There is no way out but to sin against God. God does not leave us in that position. And so we must, in each of our lives, dear ones, overcome that blaming, that passing of the blame to others and own up to our own responsibility to yet sow seed into that field that we might reap of the blessing of the, of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, and not the deeds of the flesh. Others may seek to escape this particular principle not by blaming others so much as by expecting a miracle to rescue them from this particular state or circumstance. Some Christians might have the tendency to presume upon the grace and the mercy of God and knowing what God has said, yet so sinful seed, and then pray for a crop failure. But God does not, though He is able to bring a crop failure, so that all the wickedness and evil that we have sown does not come to pass. God is able to do that. But... My observation is that normally God does not prevent those things from occurring, but yet takes them and teaches us, uh, uh, teaches us through them many valuable lessons and how we are to, to learn of Him, to be lowly in that situation and to be instructed by the Lord, to kiss the rod, to love the rod and the staff of the Lord, which should be even in every child's situation, where the rod and the staff are administered within the home in a faithful manner, to be able to say, thank God for the rod and the staff which my parents have used to faithfully discipline me and love me. And God does 
in like manner with his rod and staff. I've known families where they have sown seed and allowed seed to be sown by their children into the, into the field of the deeds of the flesh and then prayed for the Lord to return before it all comes up. Prayed for the second coming of Christ before it all comes to fruition. But normally that is not the case. The Lord will return at His predetermined time and we believe that there are yet some things that God must accomplish upon the earth that would indicate to us that God's Christ's coming is yet uh, a ways off and that we must, in the meantime, labor, be faithful unto Him. And so, dear ones, <clears throat> a man does indeed reap what he sows. The Apostle Paul declares and has declared in Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He's speaking of our Christian liberty in this passage. That Christian liberty that he speaks of is not a freedom to do whatever pleases you or myself. That's not Christian liberty. It's a freedom to do whatever pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our liberty in Christ. It's a freedom from the deeds of the flesh that we find in Galatians 5.19-21. And it is a freedom to obey and to sow that seed into the field of the fruit of the Spirit. That's our liberty in Christ. It's a freedom from provoking and envying one another, but a freedom to bearing the burdens of one another. It's a freedom from sowing seed in the field of sin, but a freedom to sow seed in the field of the Spirit. But it is not, and listen closely, Dear ones, it is not a freedom from reaping the sinful actions or the consequences of our own sinful actions and decisions. It's not freedom from reaping that. And so, as we very briefly outline this passage in just the last few minutes, Remaining, I want to simply make two points from this passage. Very, very abbreviated, uh, but I want to make two points. First of all, consider what God says through the Apostle Paul about the principle of sowing and reaping in your own life in verses six or verses seven through eight. We've read that passage. Already, But if you treat, dear ones, the law of sowing and reaping as if it were not applicable to you, God says you have deceived yourself. You have deceived yourself. 
If you believe you can escape, this particular principle is like jumping off of a building, defying the law of gravity. This principle is true. And true in all of our lives, each one of us. Paul says, in effect, when he says, be not deceived, quite literally, he says, stop deceiving yourselves. The implication being that the Galatian Christians, in regard to this principle, were already to some degree deceiving themselves. And I think, to a large degree, we all imbibe this particular philosophy to one degree or another. But Paul says, stop deceiving yourselves. What a man sows, he will reap. God cannot be mocked. God cannot be mocked. How do you mock God? According to this particular passage, stop deceiving yourselves. God cannot be mocked. How do we mock God in regard to our own human responsibility to sow our seed in the right field? Well, we mock God by believing He doesn't really see or know what we sow. He's not really interested in what we sow. He doesn't really care what we sow. That's to mock God. Or we mock God by believing He will not, in fact, give us what we have sown. That in some way God is not to be taken seriously in this particular respect. That God will forgive, that God will, and He will forgive, but He will forgive in such a way that we will not have to reap the consequences. See, that's presumption on our parts. That is to presume upon God, it is to mock God in what He has said. God will not be mocked. He cannot be mocked. All of these ways in which we mock God, dear ones, are in effect ways in which we disbelieve God. It's the, the, the root sin is unbelief. We do not take God at His word. We do not take God seriously when God says this. We do not fear the living God. We have the wrong concept of who God is and how He does bring forth a harvest from whatever we reap or what from whatever we sow, I should say. You see, God says, there is a harvest day for all of us coming. And we do reap it in this life, and we reap it in the life to come. We do reap, if we sow to an immoral character, we will reap, reap an immorality. If we sow... With regard to these deeds of the flesh, we will reap in our own life that harvest. But by the same token, dear ones, we can reap. No matter what we go through, 
Regardless of the circumstances and the trials through which we pass, if we sow into the field of the Spirit, God will cause to be reaped from that sowing into the field of the Spirit, abundant fruit of the Spirit. Someone might ask, in this particular principle, that what a man sows, he reaps. Where is the grace and mercy in this principle? Well, the grace and mercy in this principle, dear ones, is that you don't have to sow bad seed. You don't have to sow into the field of the deeds of the flesh. If you do, it is because you have chosen to do so. And you reap what you have chosen to do. You don't have to. By God's grace, you do not have to perpetuate even that with which you uh, were, the environment in which you were raised. Now, no one is saying that, that those who have been raised in a particular kind of environment won't have to overcome many, many areas in their life which have have caused them to head in a certain direction. But nevertheless, dear ones, by the grace of God, depending upon the Word of God and His Spirit, you can begin to sow seed in the right field. And you may say already, well, what if I've already in my own life sown much seed in this field of the deeds of the flesh? Stop sowing seed in the field of the deeds of the flesh. Call out to God to give you the grace now to begin to sow into the field of the Spirit. God in His mercy will give you the strength and the grace to endure whatever will come your way. Be faithful now. Note that God does not say in this passage, it's the reapers who decide what the harvest will be like. No, it's the sowers. It's the sowers who will decide what a man sows, he will reap. And so neither harvest, dear ones, whether a harvest from the deeds of the flesh or a harvest from the from the fruit of the Spirit. Neither one of those harvests are accidentally produced. Both are purposely produced. And this is God's incentive program to our own moral responsibility with the grace with which God has given to us to be responsible before Him. We must impress this, dear ones, upon our children, this principle. Even at their very young age, to impress upon them, you will, you will reap what you've sown. God, help us to use even our own life to be humble enough and say, you see here, this is what I have reaped because of what I sowed many years ago. But you don't have to repeat this by God's grace. God can be merciful to you in keeping you from having to go through what I went through. 
the last thing that I would say about the second point, and the last point I would make concerning this particular passage, is simply this. Listen to God's exhortation to you, beloved, to persevere. In verse 9, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. The Lord says, dear ones, don't ever become weary in doing what is honoring to God so that you throw in the towel and quit and say, I give up. There is indeed no harvest for doing what's right. Do not throw in the towel, God says. Persevere in doing what is right. For the one who perseveres will reap God promises. He stakes his own word upon that fact. If you do not faint, you will reap in due time. What keeps you, dear ones? What keeps you going when you feel like quitting? When you cry out, this is not going to bring a righteous harvest by sowing in the field of the fruit of the Spirit. What keeps you going? It's the faithful and dependable Word of God alone, dear ones. The Spirit giving to us illumination that God will keep His Word and His promise. You will reap if you do not give up. You say, for example, dear ones, tithing is hard on such a limited income. God says, don't give up. You will reap the harvest. You say, loving that person that I'm supposed to love is difficult. It seems impossible to love that person. God says, you obey me and love him as or love her as I have commanded, and you will reap if you faint not. You say, for example, standing for the truth is frightening to me. There are so many foes. There are so many enemies. God says, you stand for the truth and you will reap that harvest. If you faint not. You say, being consistent in my Bible reading, in my prayer life, in leading my family, in, in family, regular family worship, is difficult with my schedule. God says, don't give up. You will reap a harvest if you are faithful. You say, disciplining my children faithfully, consistently, is frustrating. How many times throughout the day I must administer discipline? But God says, you'll be faithful. For in due season, if you don't faint, you will reap. You will reap the blessings. And so God says to you, beloved, today, don't quit. Be responsible before God, morally responsible, and you will reap the harvest.
that he has promised. In conclusion, let me simply leave this with you. You cannot judge, dear ones, what others in the church have sown simply by the trials through which they're passing. You cannot tell by what trials a a family or an individual is going through as being some standard or indication of what they have sown. There is not necessarily a correspondence to that through which we pass in this life as far as comforts of life and what we have faithfully sown. That was not true of the prophets in the Old Testament. It was not true of the apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And it's not been true of the martyrs and the faithful ones throughout history. But what they did reap in this life was the fruit of the Spirit in their life. And what they reaped for all eternity was eternal life. Rather than reaping corruption, rather than reaping destruction, what they reaped was eternal life. And so, dear ones, what moral character do you want to reap? What do you want your character to be like? Do you want it to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, then don't stop sowing seed into the field of the fruit of the Spirit, into the field of the truth of God's Word, and growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, for you will reap if you faint not. Let us stand in prayer. Heavenly Father, Thou hast mercifully exhorted us this day from Thy Word to be faithful. Though Thou art a sovereign God who has determined all things that should come to pass and works all things after the counsel of His will, nevertheless, our God, Thou hast not relieved us of our responsibility to be faithful, to be obedient, to sow seed, in that field of the Spirit, that we might reap eternal life. O God, we pray that Thou would have mercy upon us, for we have all sown at various times seed. Daily we have sown seed into the field of the deeds of the flesh. O God, we pray that, that Thou would forgive us, that Thou would teach us, instruct us, Lord, to overcome those desires to overcome that inclination to do so. Give to us, Lord, the grace to say no to the devil when he comes with temptation, knocking at our door, to say, no, I will not answer that door. O God, we pray that Thou would make us a people that are hopeful, that we would look forward to that time in our lives here upon the earth, in the lives of our children, in the lives of this church and nation, O God, when there would be moral fruit, righteous fruit that is reaped because of the faithfulness of God's people in sowing to that field for many years. O Lord God, we do 
Bless thy most holy name. We ask, Lord, that thou would cause us to reflect upon our death. O God, to see that we, as to our body, are not immortal, but that, Father, we will perish, and that, God, we will stand before thee, perhaps in many of our lives sooner than we anticipate, and that we cannot take for granted the days which thou hast given to us upon this, in this life. Lord, let us be faithful to redeem the time. Let us be faithful, our God, to use all of the light and the understanding with which thou hast blessed us to walk in that light, not to walk in darkness. We ask, God, that thou would seal to our hearts and minds the truths that have come from thy word this day. For we ask these things in the blessed name of Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said, 
that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.